If you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, you should always have one with you. Don't, tr- don't use your phone. Come on now. You need something in your hand. Grab a pew Bible. 550 is the page if you don't know how to get there. 550 is the page. Luke chapter 12. And as you're turning there, I, I did want to make mention the updates. You heard them through prayer and through uh, uh, Doug and Terrell's prayer. But, uh, well, we have good news and bad news. Some, some good news first. Uh, Elsie Hager has had a lot of more tests, and they've all been negative, which is a good thing. So Elsie's on the mend. We're very glad for that, Elsie. Yes. Um, Bill Fraker's home, but uh, he, he had three hospitalizations in three weeks. He's home, but, boy, he's still got a long road ahead. Weeks of recovery, uh, maybe a month, and uh, he's still in much pain. So prayers for Debbie, because we all know what it's like when a man is in pain. We're all sissies. So Debbie, our prayers are with you and with Bill. We know that. Um, and then uh, two more. Uh, Ray is still hospitalized, Ray Varela. Um, Marianne is still hospitalized. Ray had gallbladder surgery, removal surgery. Uh, praise God that he did on the day that he did. Doc says he wouldn't have had much longer had he waited. Thank God for that. But he is still in a lot of pain. Pray for Ray. And Marianne, she went back in the hospital a couple days ago. Um, obstruction of some kind. The obstruction has passed, but uh, there's still um, something going on. Scar tissue is our, our hope. Um, cancer is what we do not hope for. In any event, there will be likely a surgery tomorrow, and the doctors are going to find out uh, when they open her tomorrow for surgery. So prayers for Marianne. I did something uh, yesterday that I've never done before. I, I, I had three hospital visits, and they were all at different hospitals. Would you people please stop getting sick? <laughs> Tom and I and the elders. Glenn, Glenn went to one hospital, and, and no one was there because Bill had been released. So uh, no more getting sick, okay? Okay? Okay. I, all right. We're, I'm, I'm, you're going to put me in the hospital soon. Luke chapter 12. Before we read it, a story. Margaret Muffet. Yes, that's a real name. Margaret Muffet, a 58-year-old woman from Dallas. This was... A number of years ago in 1989, she was 58 at the time, Margaret Muffet from Dallas was well known to the Dallas County Courthouse. Judge Keith Dean had handled many of her cases. And despite Margaret's many crimes, most of them petty, but nevertheless crimes, he and the employees at the courthouse had, grew, had grown fond of Margaret Muffet especially fond of the many excuses she would give whenever her court dates were about to arrive. Margaret had all kinds of excuses. She was too tired, too poor, too much work, too sick. She had doctor's letters, doctor appointments. You name it, Margaret found the excuse to avoid her court date. Well, sure enough, in October of 1989, Margaret committed another crime. Two, two crimes, in fact. She was uh, charged with one count of forgery and one count of unauthorized use of a motor vehicle. With respect to the forgery, Margaret had a long history of writing bad checks. 
And as a result of the charges, Judge Dean sentenced her to six months probation. Well, wouldn't you believe it? While on probation, she did it again. She forged another check, this time to her lawyer, for $1,000 to pay for attorney fees. Now, we, many of us don't feel too bad about that, do we? Nevertheless, it was a crime. Once again, Judge Keith Dean made the order for Margaret to appear in court, this time on December 6, 1989. And once again, Judge Dean and all the courthouse employees readied themselves for Margaret's excuses. But, to their surprise, they heard not a word. With only a week to go before the court date, the courthouse had barely heard a peep, nothing, in fact, from Margaret. About that time, Judge Dean and the county court employees came to learn why Margaret had been so silent. She was dead. She was dead. Sure enough, a few days prior to Margaret's court date, a courthouse employee ran into the judge's office and showed him the obituary notice in the Dallas Times-Herald newspaper. The notice read that Margaret Muffet had died in the East Texas Hospital and that funeral arrangements were pending. Everyone in the court mourned the loss of Margaret Muffet. And Judge Dean, who was so fond of the woman, He sadly turned over her final case over to Virgil Milton, the court coordinator, to be dismissed upon presentation of a death certificate. (laughs) Time passed. And Virgil finally picked up Margaret's file again in February of 1990 to process the dismissal. But something was missing. There was no death certificate. The family had not dropped it off. Where was it, he wondered. She did die, didn't she? Virgil's thoughts betrayed him. Surely she didn't fake her death. Surely she wouldn't stoop to that level just to excuse her day in court. But after days of searching county and state records, no death certificate could be found for one Margaret Muffet of Dallas, Texas. And on February the 22nd of 1990, the Dallas County Courthouse issued a warrant for the arrest of Margaret Muffet. It didn't take long to find Margaret. She was sitting at home when the sheriff came to her door. And though Judge Dean and the employees at the Dallas County Courthouse loved, and I mean loved, Margaret Muffet, her last excuse was the last straw. No more probation. Judge Dean sentenced her to a full two years in prison. When the story broke in the Dallas Herald Times, one courthouse employee was quoted as saying, she's just an old con. She's really something else, but it's really kind of hard not to like her. True story. True story of Margaret Muffet. Wow. Now that gave me a good laugh when I read that story a while back. Why do I read it this morning? I read it this morning because despite our best excuses, 
God's word tells us that we too will have our day in court. That's the title of this message today. You will have your day in court. You may have gotten a handout, no notes, just a place to write notes today. You will have your day in court despite your best excuse most of which you say to yourselves in your own minds to convince yourself, but try as we might to suppose that we can avoid a final day in the heavenly courtroom, up pops the haunting words of the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians 5.10 We must all appear, Paul says, before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one, each person, may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And then alongside Paul's words comes the warning of Jesus in Luke 12, verse 40. Therefore you be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. This warning of Jesus comes in the midst of a portion of the Gospel of Luke that we are going to look at today. And while it contains much for us to fear about the pending, inevitable day in the heavenly courtroom, Jesus also, in this text, gives us wonderful and wise counsel for how we can be ready and prepared to stand before the Lord when we have our day in court. Will you please stand with me as we read from Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 35. Luke chapter 12, verses 35 to 48. The word of the Lord, Luke 12, 35 to 48. Jesus says this, Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you, he'll, he will gird himself, the master will, and will have them sit down to eat, and he will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch of the night and finds them so waiting and watching, blessed are those servants. Another parable, verse 39, but know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And Peter interjects, he says to the Lord, Lord, do you speak this parable only to us or to all people, all those gathered here? And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But, verse 45, but if that servant says in his heart, oh, my master He's delaying his coming. And if that servant begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and be drunk, 
Well, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour when he is not aware and he will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant who knew his master's will and, and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall also be beaten with many stripes. But the one, he who did not know his master's will yet committed these things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. You may be seated. Tough text today as we continue our series in Luke. Starts off simple, straightforward. Let's look again at verse 35 through 38. He says, Jesus says, and he's speaking in in parables here soon. He says, let your waist be girded. Let your lamps be burning. You yourselves like men waiting for their master when he'll return from the wedding. When he comes and knocks that they might open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master when he comes will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that even the master will then gird himself and have him sit down to eat. He'll come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or in the third watch late into the night or in the early morning and still finds them waiting for him, blessed are those servants. Waist girded. What's a, what's a girding of the waist? Well, in the first century, in Jesus' day, it meant literally picking up your robe so that you could be ready to go, ready to walk, ready to run. They had long robes back in that day, and, and unless they, they hoisted them up, they, they couldn't maneuver very well. He says, let your waist be girded, be ready, be in a ready position. Let your lamps be burning. Let there be enough oil in the lamp. A first quality, there's three qualities in this text, of those who prepare themselves to face the Lord when their day in court comes. There's three qualities, three qualities of people who are getting ready for their day in court. And that first quality is simply that, readiness. Readiness. Waist girded, lamps burning, enough oil in the lamp. Waist girded, are you, are you ready or lazy? Are you slothful or are you expectant? Lamps burning. Is there enough oil in the lamp? Meaning, have you filled, filled your heart and your mind with good things to remain ready when Jesus returns? Are you filling it, filling it with scripture, with prayer, with the gathering of the saints, with meditations and conversations about the Lord? Do you have enough in your spiritual tank to wait until the end? To make it to the end. I think of those hospitalized. I I, I saw Ray, I saw Marianne, especially uh, Marianne at the end. But even uh, Ray was, uh, he was um, in pain, taking pain meds, and he was still talking about the Lord. It was the first thing on his lips. 
He was talking about the Lord. He said, oh, he was witnessing to the guy, to his nurse that was coming in, who turned out to be a Christian, so he's witnessing to a Christian. <laughs> it was great. Ray was, you know, on pain meds, witnessing. It was the first thing, the first instinct coming out of him because his tank is full of the Lord. Marianne, you know, we, hospitalization after hospitalization, surgery after surgery, you would think that by now she would be having a bad attitude, grumpy, despondent. No, not so. We, I walk in, those that saw her, she is alive, happy, joyful, saying, God, whatever you want, a full tank. Are you ready? Are you ready? Another quality of those, preparing for the final judgment, a second quality. First is readiness. Second, watchfulness. Watchfulness. Look at verse 36 again, Luke 12, 36. He says, and you yourselves be like men who wait, watch, for their master, when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open the door to him immediately. When uh, at my home, when the grandparents come, Bob or Cheryl, or, or especially uh, when my folks come, because they don't get to come very often, they, they live far away, but uh, when the grandparents come, and we, we te- well, when we tell our kids that the grandparents are coming, hey, Bennett, hey, Mally, hey, Amelia, grandma and grandpa are coming. Bob Bob and Bowie are coming over to visit. Yes, that his name is Bob Bob. Everybody call Bob Bob Bob. Hi, Bob Bob. It's your new nickname now, Bob. It's going to stick. When Bob Bob and Bowie, Bowie is Cheryl, uh, come and we tell the kids they're coming, my kids immediately, no matter what I tell them, I could say they're coming in five hours. My kids will run to the window and they'll sit there and wait. <laughs> And I'm looking at, I just said five hours, Mallory. And she's like, I know, I know. I'm just going to wait here. I'm like, oh, goodness. Are you kidding? On the other hand, there's, there's a real special quality about that. It shows that my kids really are, have love and devotion for their grandparents. It shows that the, they have good thoughts and intentions toward them. That they can't wait to see them. It could be five hour wait and Mallory and Bennett and Amelia will run to the front window and and play and wait and keep looking. Jesus says in verse 37, blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. And when the grandparents, when they they see my, my kids' faces, smiling faces in the window upon their arrival, it makes them feel loved and cared for. It inspires them to, to bless and to spoil their grandkids all the more. Verse 37 continues, Assuredly, I say to you that he, the master, will gird himself and have them sit down and he'll come and serve them. Well, we've been talking about grandparents arriving at a house and and seeing their grandkids in a window and being inspired to to bless them all the more. But Jesus, Jesus is talking about himself. Jesus is talking about his return in this parable. What he's going to do for those sitting, ready, watchful, at the window. And he says, for those who are ready, for those who are watchful, 
For those who have blessed me, Jesus says, with their attentiveness and their hopefulness when I come, Jesus says, I myself am going to go bless you. I will receive your attention and love and then I will go and give it right back to you. Assuredly, I say to you, he, the master, will gird himself, have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. When you're ready and watchful, even through difficult hours of your lives, through the second, through the third watch of the night, when you are ready and watchful, you will be blessed at the coming of the Lord. Watchful in hard times, no doubt, but also watchful in times of peace and safety. For we never know when Jesus is coming. He says as much in the next parable, which is different than the one we've just read, although it evokes similar themes. Look at verse 39. This is a new parable, though it's hard to tell as you read it through quickly. He says this in a new parable. He says, but know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who was the master in the first parable? In verses 35 to 37, who was the master? Who was the master in the first parable? Oh, it's tough. 35 to 37, excuse, 38, excuse me. Who was the master? Jesus. Who's the master in verses 39 and 40? We are. Good job. We are. Here's an even harder question. (laughs) Who's the thief in verses 39 and 40? Jesus. You say, what? In this parable, it's as if we're the master now of our own house. We're the keepers of our domain our own life, so to speak, and Jesus this time is likened to a thief. You say a thief? Well, not to the immorality of a thief, but to the sneaky arrival that epitomizes a thief. Jesus says you you will never know when the thief comes. So also you will never know when I am coming. Verse 40, the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The point being, be watchful at all times, in hardship and in peace, for he will come when we least expect it. Be ready. Be watchful. And a third and final quality today, be faithful. Be faithful. Look at verse 41. We're moving quickly, but we're going to start slowing down in this portion. This is going to be a more difficult portion. Verse 41. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, do you speak uh, this parable only to us or to all people? And the Lord said, who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. 
Did you notice that Jesus really didn't answer Peter's question there? Read it again. If you, if you have a Bible in front of you, Luke 12, verse 41, Peter says, Lord, who are you talking to? Who are you talking to, Lord? Are you talking just to us, to the 12? Are you talking to the crowd? Are you talking to all? Who are you directing these words to, Lord? Jesus doesn't answer his question, at least not directly, does he? Though he does seem, Jesus does seem to hint at the answer. In fact, he spends the next seven verses talking about the same thing. Servants of the master. Servants of the master is the topic of the next seven verses to the end of our text today. It would seem reasonable to me to suggest that if you're a servant of the master, then you are someone who is under his direct authority, like Jesus' disciples, directly under the master's authority. Of course, in a sense, the whole world is under God's authority, isn't it? Whether, whether the world knows it or not, the whole world is under God's authority. But it, does, it would seem a bit strange, don't you think? At least this side of eternity. To call an unbeliever a servant of God. That seems a bit strange to me. That, that's strange language to me. And I know that most non-Christians would especially object to that title. Try walking up to a belligerent non-believer and point at him and say, did you know you're a servant of God? I don't think you're going to get a very positive response from that person. It would seem then that Jesus is beginning to limit the conversation. He's limiting his next comments to those who are servants of the master. To those who believe in the master to those who serve the master. And so with that in mind, if that's a, a reasonable framework within which to read these things, let's read again these verses that are directed towards servants of the master. Verse 42, The Lord said, Who then is that faithful and that wise steward? Who is it? Who is the one whom his master will make ruler over all of the master's house? Who is the one whom the master will give that to? Who is the one who will be the one that the master directs to give portions to the other servants? Who is the one who will be appointed chief, who will be given authority in the master's house? to divvy out the daily portions to the rest. Verse 43, Blessed is the servant whom the master will find so doing when he comes. Blessed is the one whom when the master returns, he will see that servant's faithfulness. He will see that servant's devotion. He will see that servant's attentiveness, watchfulness, readiness. If a master sees that in a servant, verse 44, truly I say to you, he will make that servant ruler over all that he has. 
Jesus' teaching is simple and it's straightforward here. If the master comes back and he sees his servant living faithfully, performing tasks with dedication, then the master will reward that servant with more responsibility, even rulership over other servants in the house, and even over the master's possessions. Translation, when Jesus returns, if he finds us living in grace and truth, if he finds us dedicated to him with love and service toward one another, then he will reward us in the kingdom. Revelation 5.10 says we'll be like kings and priests Kings and priests serving our God for all eternity. God's kingdom has structure to it. We often don't think about that, but in the coming kingdom of God, there will be structure, there will be order, and as such, there will be authority. There will be measures of authority given to the faithful. Authority over people, yes. Authority over God's creation, yes. Over his possessions, yes. It's riddled throughout Scripture that we often don't think of it. We, we, we always have these Hollywood views of heaven, Hollywood views of the new earth, Hollywood views of floating on the clouds and just kind of being serene. Not so. It's going to be very, very, uh, quite frankly, it's going to be very much like this present world minus all of the sin and death and darkness. There's going to be activity. It's going to be organization and structure. Many parts of Isaiah and Revelation hint at the fact that there are, there are going to be nations. There's going to be ethnicity. There's going to be culture. And there's going to be order and structure such that some will be having authority and rulership because they were faithful in this life, while others won't. doesn't mean they won't be there on the new earth. It just means that their portion, their recompense, their reward it won't be as much as it could be. But if we are ready, watchful, and faithful, God will honor us. He'll even serve us, which is what it says right there in the text of Luke. And that's hard to conceive. But what if we're unfaithful? What if we're unfaithful? What if we're unfaithful servants? To the unready to the unwatchful, to the unfaithful. Verses 45 to 48, hard words. But if that servant says in his heart, oh, my master, he's delaying. My master's delaying. He's not coming back. He's far away. I've got plenty of time on my hands. My master is delaying his coming Verse 45, and if that servant begins to beat the male and female servants, the other, the other servants, those around him, and when he, if he begins to eat and drink and gets drunk, then the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him, at an hour when he is not aware, and he will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will, 
he shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know, yet committed things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. And this is where I'm going to have Tom come on up and explain all this for us. Come on up, Tom. Tom and I divvy up the schedule sometimes. Every once in a while, I'm like, yeah, you take that. I don't want that. He got lucky this time. (laughs) Three categories of unfaithfulness. Did you catch them? Three categories. Sometimes it's hard to read. Sometimes the first two kind of blend together maybe. But there are three categories of unfaithfulness here in these verses. And with them come three levels of judgment. We should note at the onset, as we've read these verses, it should be noted that many Bible, most Bible scholars, most Bible scholars, read these verses as if they're directed toward the unbeliever. And in all honesty, I can very much sympathize with that reading. Some of you are reading these verses now and, and completely of the mindset, oh, well, Jesus has made a big pivot here, and he's now talking to unbelievers. And I can sympathize with that reading. I think that there are uh, a number of things within the text that can point in that direction. There are a number of indicators that, that can suggest that Jesus is now addressing others, the unregenerate, rather than believers. But consider with me, if you dare, a few reasons why I think it's slightly more likely that Jesus is still talking about the regenerate ones, servants of the Master, who lose track of their readiness and watchfulness and faithful disposition. Notice the three categories. Let's go through it one by one here and see if you can see what I see. Notice the three categories starting at the bottom. Verse 48, verse First part of verse 48. But he who did not know, the servant who did not know the master's will, yet committed things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with few. There's a first category of, uh, of a servant. A servant who did not know his master's will. Verse 48a. And yet did things deserving of judgment. Second category working our way back from the bottom. Verse 47, another category. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. Here we have another servant who did know what the master wanted of him. And he did not do it. That's the second category of, of, of servants. And now we have an, a first category of servants in this portion of the word in verses 45 and 46. But if that servant says in his heart, my master's delaying is coming, and that servant begins to beat the male and female servants to eat and drink and be drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him and an hour when he is not aware and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers or with the unbelieving ones. We'll get to that in a moment. This is the servant who knew his master's will, 
like the, the second one in verse 47, but not only did he not do his master's will, he deliberately did things that he knew his master would despise. Three categories of servants in verses 45 to 48. And, obviously, they incur three levels of punishment. The man at the bottom, verse 48, he was not aware of what the master wanted from him. He, had, he was a servant of the master. He was under his authority. But he, for whatever reason, was unaware of uh, the directives of the master, of the way in which he wanted him to serve the master. And so he didn't do those things. And when the master returned, he was beaten, he was judged for not doing what he should have done despite the fact that he was not aware of it. And so he was beaten with few stripes, the parable says. A second category of punishment was given in verse 47 to the servant who did know his master's will. He heard his master when he left. He said, hey, I want you to do this, this, and this. And the servant went, okay, yeah, got it. And off the master went, and when the master returned, he hadn't done any of it. He hadn't uh, deliberately uh, did things that were worthy of, of uh, that were immoral. He hadn't done things that were, that were awful or despicable, but he, he hadn't accomplished the tasks that the master wanted him to. Uh, he had more accountability, and so he was beaten with many stripes. And then there was that, that first category of servant in verses 45 and 46. Oh, he knew the master's will, all right. He heard it when the master left. The master said, I want you to do this, this, and this, and the master left. But he heard the master, and he turned around, and he deliberately disobeyed everything the master said. He started to abuse his fellow servants. He was a servant himself. And he started to abuse them, beat them, hurt them, cause pain caused disruption and chaos in the house. He was a mean and cruel man. He would eat and get drunk every night while the master was away. He wasn't doing the the household chores. He was relaxing while everyone else was doing some of the work. And when the master returned, he was most displeased with this servant. Most displeased. Cut in two appointed a portion with the unbelievers or unbelieving ones. A few more comments before we start making interpretation. Did you notice that they're still all servants of the master? Don't lose sight of that. Every single one of them is called a servant of the master. Did you notice that even though the most wicked servant... In verse 45, even though he said, my master is delaying his coming, did you notice that he still believed his master was coming? He still believed he was coming. What he disbelieved was that his master was coming soon. And so his, uh, his fault, his error, if you will, is that he was not ready when the master returned. He was not expecting him to return that fast. 
I wonder if you can say that about an unbeliever. How many unbelievers do you know? How many unbelievers do you know that believe that Jesus is coming back? How many unbelievers do you know believe that Jesus is coming back? I can't think of one. Most unbelievers that I know, they, they think I'm crazy for believing that. They think it's a made-up story. They hear that I believe in the, the return of Christ and they think, you are a whack job. There's no such thing as the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's the disposition of an unbeliever. It's interesting that this most wicked servant of verse 45 knew his master was coming. He just didn't think he was coming that fast. Well, there are still a lot of hurdles here uh, to jump over. If we're going to make the jump to making verses 45 and 48 something that could potentially refer to Christian servants, Pastor Neil, I am still very unconvinced. You've listed a few things that perk my interest, but uh, we still have a ways to go. I mean, look at the punishment, Neil. Look at the punishment. The wicked servant is sawn in two. The others are beaten with a whip, stripes on their back. And you know what? I will readily admit, I will readily admit, if it is the case that these punishments are to be taken literally, if that is the case, that we are to read this parable, which by nature a parable is a figure of speech, it's a story, it's an illustration, but if we are to take this parable and to read it literally, that literally speaking, the wicked servant was sawn with a saw in two, and literally speaking, the other servants were beaten with a whip on their back, then I would completely grant that this portion is about unbelievers. No doubt about it. For nowhere in Scripture does it speak of the physical beating or dismemberment of a believer as a kind of punishment from God. Nowhere in Scripture does it speak of the dismemberment or of physical pain being inflicted upon a believer at the judgment seat of Christ. So if this is to be read literally, it's about unbelievers. No doubt about it. My question is, is it to be read literally? It's interesting that the phrase in Greek for sawn in two was a phrase used throughout Greek literature as an idiom, as a figure of speech in Jesus' day. To be sawn in two in Jesus' day was a figure of speech, an idiom in the language. It often meant, it, it, it very, very most often meant through, through uh, letters between uh, uh, correspondence and different writings of the day, it often meant to incur the greatest and most excruciating level of loss, pain, and shame. I've been sawn in two, they would write to each other. I've been sawn in two. I'm in great pain and agony. I have great shame and loss. We should know and remember that loss is definitely, definitely a part of the final judgment, even for Christians. If you have a Bible, you can look at 1 Corinthians 3, verses 14 and 15. If anyone's work which he has built endures, he'll receive a reward. 
Then Paul says in verse 15 of chapter 3, but if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. What is interesting too, to me, is how the author of Hebrews refers to the final judgment seat of Christ to the final judgment of God, more generically, I should say. But it's interesting how the author of Hebrews refers to the final judgment. If you have a Bible, look at Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4, verses 12 to 13. We often read verse 12. We forget that it's related to verse 13, which speaks of the final judgment. So read again verse 12 of Hebrews 4. For the word of God is living and it's powerful And it's sharp, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and of marrow. And it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the human heart. Verse 13, And there is no creature hidden from God's sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Could it be, could it be, that the wicked servant of Luke 12 is a believer and that on the last day the word of God will cut through, cut through this man? that the word of God, which is sharper than any double-edged sword, will pierce this man to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, to discern this man's thoughts and intentions and to appoint him a portion, a portion, a meager portion with the other unbelieving ones. It's interesting how Hebrews uses the illustration of a sword to speak of the final judgment. Jesus is seemingly doing the same here in Luke 12. And what I love too about uh, Hebrews 4 is the concept of shame at the end. I don't love it. I don't want that. But man, it's powerful. Look at verse 13. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. There is... There's nowhere to hide on the last day. Some will be shamed. 1 John 2.28, And now, little children, abide in Jesus, for when he appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. 1 John 2.28, referring to believers, that we wouldn't be ashamed when he comes, because some will be ashamed When he comes and when the word of God is there with Christ at the final judgment, slicing, cutting to the division of of joint and marrow, cutting through the intents of the heart, discerning it, seeing it, laid bare, naked and open, God will know it all because the day will reveal it. The light of Christ will reveal it. The word of God will reveal it. And some will be shamed at his coming. I think all of us will, to a degree. I have to wonder, I have to wonder, is Jesus using hyperbole in Luke 12? 
Is it exaggeration, hyperbolic language? It's a parable. Let's not forget. It is meant to be a story, a figure of speech. I have to wonder, is Jesus using hyperbole in Luke 12 to refer to the things mentioned also in 1 Corinthians 3, in Hebrews 4, in 1 John 2? You say, but Neil, my Bible says that Jesus will assign this servant uh, a place with the unbelievers. Didn't you read that? I did. Some of you have new, uh, NIV Bibles. Some of you have New American Standards. Some of you have the ESV. In all of those translations, it says something like that, that God will cut him into pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. A place, Neil. He'll go to hell. A place with the unbelievers. In all three of those versions, NIV says he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. New American Standard says he will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. In the ESV, he will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. I believe these translations uh, mistranslate one of the Greek words listed there. And it's not a, it's not a matter of different um, Greek text. It's all the same. It's all the same text. Every text has this uh, Greek word. Every manuscript has this Greek word. It's the Greek word meros. Meros. They translate it pieces in the NIV, New American Standard, ESV, many other translations. Meros. They translate pieces. Cut them in pieces. New King James and the King James version before it said, "No, it's not pieces. It's portion. Portion." A share. A piece meaning a portion. Big difference. Is this servant cut into pieces? Or is he given a portion? A share. A small, meager portion. The reason I lean toward this side of the fence, the New King James and King James side of the fence, portion, is because of how Luke uses it elsewhere in his gospel. In Luke 12, 42, Luke 12, 42, our same text today, Luke uses a word that has it at the same root, the word meros in Greek. Luke 12, 42, just, just a few verses prior. And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion, root word meros, of food, in due season, not pieces, their portion, their share. Elsewhere in the Gospel of Luke, later on in chapter 15, verse 12, the, father, the, the prodigal son asks his father for a portion of the estate. Lord, give me, uh, uh, he says to his father, give me my portion, my share of the estate. And then later on in Luke, chapter 24, verse 42, the disciples give Jesus a portion of their fish. The wicked servant is not assigned a place in hell in verse 46. He's assigned a portion, meaning a meager or a small recompense due to his unfaithfulness. He's assigned a portion that is commensurate with the unbelievers or unbelieving ones, apistos in Greek. You say, well, there you go. He's given a portion like the unbelievers. Isn't he, doesn't he go to hell? There again, 
It's very unique how Luke uses this word, apistos, unbelieving ones. He uses, uh, it's used four times in the Gospels elsewhere. Four times in all of the New Testament Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Four other times apistos in Greek. Did you know that all four times the word unbelieving ones is used in the Gospels? It refers to Christians. All four times it refers to Christians. Apistos in Greek, unbelieving ones, Christians. You say no. Yes, in John chapter 20, verse 27, Jesus holds out his hands and says, Thomas, be believing, don't be unbelieving. Thomas, the disciple of Christ, was disbelieving that Jesus had had raised from the dead. And Jesus looked at him and says, Thomas, don't be unbelieving. Be believing. Here I am. Put your finger right there. Don't be a pistos. Don't be an unbelieving one. And then the three other times a pistos was used in the Gospels is all related to the exact same story. It's the story that's found right after Jesus walks down the mountain of transfiguration. He has just been transfigured on the mountain with uh, Moses and Elijah. And he comes down the mountain. And afterwards, uh, as he comes down the mountain, uh, a father comes to him and says, Lord, my son is demon-possessed. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. And he begged Jesus to help him. And what did Jesus say to that man and to all that were around him? He said, O faithless, apistos, and perverse generation, bring your son here. And Jesus healed the boy. Well, you say, well, see, Jesus was talking to the unbelieving crowd. Maybe. But it's interesting that right after that, the disciples come up to Jesus And they say, Jesus, how come we couldn't cast out the demon? And do you know what Jesus says to them? He says, because of your unbelief. Because of your unbelief. He tells the disciples, Christians, believers in Jesus, with the exception of Judas, he says, the reason you couldn't cast out that demon is because you did not believe. You were unbelieving. Let me put it a different way. A believer can have unbelieving thoughts and attitudes about the Lord. A believer can have, presently have, unbelieving thoughts and attitudes about the Lord. A believing Christian can be unbelieving that Christ will return soon. I can be a believing Christian and yet at the same time I can have unfaithful or unbelieving attitudes that my Lord is going to return and I'm going to have a day in court before Him. In a very real sense, I can be unbelieving even at the moment of Jesus' return in my state of mind, unprepared, not ready, Ignoring Scripture's warnings, in my opinion, my humble opinion, when Jesus says in Luke 12, 46 that the wicked servant will be appointed a portion, meros, that is on par with the unbelieving ones, apistos, what he is saying is that this man, this wicked servant, servant of the master, will only receive a meager piece of the kingdom of God that is commensurate with all the others like him who were unbelieving of the soon return of Christ, who were unbelieving of the fact that when they did face the Master on the last day, that they would be 
judged for the things done in the body, whether good or bad, as Paul says, who were unbelieving that they might experience shame. Deep, devastating loss and shame on the last day, as is spoken of by 1 John 2, 28. I believe that this wicked servant was not at all worried that the word of God could pierce him through. Cut to cut through joint and marrow and lay him bare and naked that the word of God could saw him in half. He didn't believe a lick of that. And so, that servant, servant of the master was given a maros, a portion that was very small. It's not the eternal status of the wicked servant that Jesus is addressing. It's his present state of mind and his present course of action. He is wicked. He is unbelieving in the soon return of Christ and of the reality of judgment. But he is still a servant of the master. And his master treats him with severity on the day of judgment. Paul says he will suffer loss, but don't forget the last part. Yet he will be saved, yet so as through fire. Or we can say it's all about the unbeliever, okay? I don't know what you think. I've studied this a lot, um, and I'm really excited to dialogue with you about it. It's a tough one. Suffice to say, you and I, we will have our day in court. Let there be no mistaking that. And if you are under the assumption that your day in court won't matter, if you are under the assumption that your day in court will be easy, that you'll stand before the Lord and say, "Ah, you know, I I missed a few things. I, uh, I beat a few people. I got drunk here and there. No big deal, right, Lord? Word of God will pierce. It will hurt. There will be loss. There will be shame. There will be the kingdom. But the portion might be small. Are you ready? Are you watchful? Are you faithful? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, uh, we have traversed through difficult portions of your word and uh, we ask for your grace. We ask for your spirit's understanding. I think most of us have never read it this way. Uh, And perhaps this explanation is wrong. If it is, Lord, would you forgive me? I uh, take seriously the teaching of your word as you know. But Lord, I know one thing for sure. You never, ever, ever want us to take the judgment seat of Christ lightly. And so God, we as a church take it seriously. We want to be ready, watchful, faithful so that there is no reason for loss or shame on the last day. Let us take your soon return with great severity, Lord, and let our lives change and be transformed 
because our eyes are constantly on your soon return, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.